knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Exodus chapter 20, God gave the Ten Commandments, and then in chapters 21 through 23, he gave more laws, mainly to the judges of Israel, so they would know how to justly deal with people who break God's commandments. And then in the end of chapter 23, the last time we were together, uh, we looked at the blessings uh, and the protection that God says he gives. He says that he will be uh, an enemy to the Israelites' enemy, an adversary to their adversaries. He will go before them, ultimately to cut off their enemies. He will bless their bread, their water. He'll take away sickness from them. He will keep them from suffering, from miscarriage from being barren, and he will fulfill the number of their days. But we noted that those blessings came with a specific, you know, thing that the Israelites had to do, and that thing was obey. You know, if you want these blessings, if you want to get all that I have offered to you, you got to obey the laws that I give you. He says, if you indeed obey my voice and do all that I speak, then I'll bless you. So that's the key, that then. It's only going to come if you do what I tell you. So this covenant that God is about to establish with the nation of Israel, it's ultimately a covenant based on their performance. It's a covenant based on their obedience. Uh, they would be blessed if they obeyed. They're going to be ultimately cursed if they disobey. But under the new covenant, our relationship with God is on, on a different principle. We're blessed because we're in Christ. We're blessed because of our dependence and faith in him. It's not based on our obedience and what we obey of God's law. It's based on putting our faith in Jesus' obedience on our behalf and also dying for all the moments and times that we have broken God's law. So God has spent four chapters telling the nation of Israel the laws he wants them to keep. He finishes with that challenge of, hey, there's a lot of blessings if you obey. And now when we come to chapter 24, which we're going to look at tonight, it's time for the nation of Israel to respond. Here's, the, here's what I want of you. Here's what I'll give to you if you do what I ask of you. Now, what do you say? What's your response to the laws that I have just given? And so chapter 24, we're going to see Israel and God make a covenant together. And with this covenant, we're going to see four important things that are kind of connected with it. And the interesting thing about the four things we're going to look at tonight that are connected with this old covenant, we also see it's the same pattern that we have with the new covenant. The new covenant is also connected with these four different things, but we're also going to see how the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. It has that same pattern. It has the same connections, but ultimately the fulfillment of those things is in Jesus, and it's far superior to what we're going to see here with the old covenant that the nation of Israel has. And after we look at that, we're going to see that God is going to take the leaders, uh, the ones who are going to help people actually establish and follow these laws, and he's going to give them a special invitation to kind of come and, and meet with him. And then the biggest leader of all, Moses, he's going to have his individual personal time with God as well. It's going to kind of set us up for what we're going to see next in the story as Moses goes up on the mountain 
for 40 days and 40 nights, then there's going to be some problems coming down the mountain with the nation of Israel, which we'll look at next. But chapter 24, starting in verse 1, says this. Now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. So right after God finishes giving all the laws and then sharing, hey, here's the blessings and the protection that come for those who obey my laws, he now says to Moses, come up to me, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, and Aaron's sons, which are Nabab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, I want you to come up and worship from afar. Now remember that God gave the Ten Commandments audibly for the whole nation to hear. And you know it was mixed not just with the voice of God, but you had the, the mountain on fire and smoke and trembling and earthquakes. And, and it was a pretty fierce situation. And the people respond by saying, Moses, you speak with us and he, we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. You know, once they heard the audible voice of the Ten Commandments, they're like, you know, we're done with that, Moses. You be the one who speaks to us. You go to God, get a message from him, and then you come to us. We, we don't want to hear directly from God anymore lest we die. You know, there was a recognition of their own uh, lack of worth to be in God's presence. Uh, and Moses says to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin so the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And so this is where we left the, you know, before we get into a lot of things, Moses is the one now kind of the mediator. He's willing to go to the thick darkness. He's willing to go to this kind of fierce scene there at Mount Sinai. He's drawing near to God and the people are, are shying away. And they're like, Moses, you go get the rest of it. We've heard the Ten Commandments. Whatever else God wants to tell us, you be the guy who listens. We'll wait on you. You come back and you reveal to us the things that God shares. And so what we looked at in chapters 21 through 23, that was only given to Moses. He went there. He heard that from God. And now he is going to relay all those things to the nation of Israel. And that's what we have here at the start of chapter 24 is it's time for him to go and tell the Israelites all the things that God has just told him. So he is with God separate from them. And God is saying, hey, okay, now you need to leave here with me and you got to go and I want you to grab some guys. I want you to get Aaron. I want you to get his two sons and I want you to get the 70 elders of Israel. So those who are in leadership that are going to help you implement and be a part of helping the people put these laws into practice. I want all those guys to come back with you, but they're not going to come as close as you have. I want them to worship from afar. They're going to get closer than the, the rest of the Israelites, and there's going to be something special from them. And then you by yourself, you're going to come, and you and I are going to have some time together where I'm going to do something with you. And so that's where we're at. And now Moses, he's going to go and we're told all, of, he tells them the laws, he tells them all that God has commanded. So all that we heard from chapters 21 through 23, Moses is now relaying that to the people. And notice now their response. And I want you to think of this because we went through a lot of laws. I mean, just take the Ten Commandments alone, but there's so many laws uh, that are really difficult ones that we look at and we think, man, that, that would be hard to put in the practice. That'd be hard to apply, hard to obey. And look at the response that the nation of Israel has as they've heard all these laws, all that God requires of them. We're told all the people answered with one voice and said, 
all the words which the Lord has said we will do. Think about that. Everybody, they're like in unison, all with one voice. They're all on the same page. Hey, we will do everything that God has asked us to do, that God has commanded of us to do. Now, I think that response shows a couple things about the Israelites. First of all, they were guilty of overconfidence. You know, I mean, just that response alone, you know, just shows that, you know, that they had a, a little more confidence in their ability than they should have. And perhaps they had a lack of appreciation of how hard it was going to be to obey this. You know, how hard it was going to be when, when God says, here are the things, here are these 10 commandments and here are these other commandments and, and how difficult it was going to be to put that into practice and just to stand back. And it seems just like, Hey, yeah. We're going to do all of it. Yeah, we got this, Lord. We can obey that. You know, if God were to come to us tonight and say what his word says, every single day, I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Can you do that? Hopefully we would be honest with ourselves. Hopefully we would reflect. Hopefully we might say, I would like to do that. But to be like the Israelites and say, all that you just said, yeah, Lord, I will love you with everything that I am all the time. I will love everybody in this world the way that I should. Yeah, I could do that. I got that, Lord. I'll do that. You know, if that was our response, kind of like the nation of Israel, you just see kind of, you know, this lack of understanding of how hard that would be, this overconfidence in our ability. I hope we'd realize, no, (laughs) Lord, in and of myself, I am incapable of that. In and of myself, I cannot love you the way that I should. I cannot love others the way that I should. I am in desperate need of you to help me to get anywhere remotely close to doing that. To say to the Lord, everything you command me, we will do, is quite a bold statement. And I think it reveals something that, you know, all of us has probably struggled with, of having a higher opinion of yourself and your ability than you should. To look at, you know, what God commands, to look at your own life and to think, you know what, I can handle this. I I can deal with this. My my ability will, will be able to, my strength, my power, you know, I got what I need to accomplish what God is telling me to do. You know, and I can relate to that. There have been many times in my life where I've had a much higher opinion of myself, a much higher opinion of my ability than I should. And usually, you know, God is very good at bringing those things to your life where it just humbles you. You fail. And then that high opinion quickly, you know, diminishes because you realize, no, I wasn't capable of this. You know, it reminds me of Peter. You know, he's a, he's a great example many times in his life of being that man who just had a, a high opinion of himself, of his ability, of what he could do that wasn't accurate to reality. Remember at the, the, the last supper there, you know, Jesus tells them, all you guys are going to stumble because of me. That the shepherd is going to be, you know, taken and the, the, the sheep are going to scatter and Peter's response is, even if all of these guys, the other 11, are made to stumble because of you, I won't be. I won't be made to stumble, Jesus. I mean, I understand what you mean. Yeah, John over here and Matthew and, you know, I get that these guys will do it, but, but I surely wouldn't. And then Jesus gives him some sober words. Assuredly, I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. This is Jesus telling him, this is what's going to happen, Peter. But once again, Peter's like, no, 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 Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Because Peter thought, you know, I can handle this. Not only am I not going to stumble, there's no way I'm going to deny you. He goes and says, even if I have to die with you, I will not not deny you. We know where the story ends. 
Peter does exactly what Jesus said he would do. He denies him three times. This man who had this high opinion of himself, of his abilities, came to realization that, you know what? He wasn't as strong as he thought. He couldn't do the things that he thought he could do. And this is something we're going to see with the nation of Israel as well. Not very long after making this bold statement of, we'll do everything that you say. We're going to end this chapter with Moses going up the mountain for 40 days. And in those 40 days, just in that short period of time, we're going to see some pretty big things that break the commands of God. And so it's not going to take long for them to recognize that they can't do what they claimed that they could. So just like the Israelites, we can't always obey God's commandments. And that's why we need to place our faith in Jesus, who perfectly and completely kept God's commandments, who died for all the commandments we broke. And this is why the covenant of the new is so much better than the old, because we're not placing our faith in ourselves, not placing our faith in our own power and our own ability to accomplish and obey God's commands. We're placing our faith in the one who was perfect. We're placing our faith in the one who sacrificed himself for the times we were imperfect. And that is what we base the new covenant on. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing for us. So this covenant starts with everyone in the nation of Israel making this bold declaration. Yeah, we'll do everything that you command us to do, God. And now we're going to see four things that are connected with the old covenant. But these are four things that are also connected with the new covenant as well. We, we see the pattern is the same. Verses 4 through 8. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basin and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So notice the first thing we're told is that Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Now notice that Moses hears everything from God and now he verbally communicates all of that to the nation of Israel. They in turn verbally respond by saying all that you have just told us will do. But then Moses goes on to write down all those things, make a record of all the things that God had revealed to them. You see, the reality is that neither Moses nor the Israelites are going to remember everything that God commanded. I mean, he comes down and all that's fresh on his mind. He shares it all. But, you know, you give it a month, you give it a couple months, you give it a year. You know, what was that thing that God said we should do to the person who does this? And, and what was that law here? Oh, I'm not quite sure. And the nation of Israel wouldn't remember either. So Moses writes it down, keeps a good record. They're not depending on their memory. Now they're able to have a recorded record of what God said. So the first thing that we see connected to this covenant is that the covenant has been made based off of God's word. You know, everything about this covenant is based on what God has said. It's based on his word. It's his laws. It's his commands. You know, he's established everything. It all comes back to what he has declared. Neither Moses nor the Israelites, they didn't add anything to the covenant. They didn't take anything away from the covenant. This is all God. All of what he has declared. All of what he has established. 
I think it's important to understand this because oftentimes when we think of making a covenant or maybe, you know, in our terminology today, you know, a contract, you know, we feel like, you know, we should get a say in how things go. I mean, we, we want to make sure that, you know, we get to say this or that, or we can add this, or we could take away that. And then when we feel good, you know, we'll sign the contract. We'll, we'll, we'll come into this covenant. You know, before Jenny and I signed the contract, you know, to buy our home here in Houston, you know, we discussed with the, the previous buyers and there were some things that we said, you know, we need this fixed. Uh, you guys need to fix that or we're not going to sign. You know, there were some things that, you know, either we would have to pay for or they would have to pay for in the whole, you know, procedure of all of them. We said, you know, you guys are going to have to pay for that in order for us to sign. And so we had things that we kind of, you know, we were able to negotiate, add, take away. And then finally we sign and we come into that covenant. So we had the ability to negotiate that. But that's not how it is in the old covenant with God. And it's not how it is in the new covenant with God. We don't get to say, you know what, God, uh, I like this law. That's great. I'm going to follow it. But this one here, you know, we're going to take that one away. That, that, that's not going to be something that I'm going to follow. And you know what? You don't even have this thing that we should be doing or this blessing that I think I should receive. And so let's add that into it. And, you know, that's not how it works. You know, it's a, it's a take it or leave it mentality. God says, here it is. I've established it all. Are you willing to follow? Well, I'll be willing to follow if you remove this and you add this. No, no, no. You don't get to remove. You don't get to add. And we kind of have that mindset of God kind of slides the contract over and we, you know, get the red ink and we make some changes and we slide it back and say, all right, how about this? He's like, no. The original or nothing. We don't get to make changes. We don't get to make additions. We don't make subtractions as a take it or leave it. I think there are believers today who believe that they kind of have a, a private agreement with God that enables them to operate under a different covenant than the rest of us. They have this mindset, you know, I got this private agreement with God that really contradicts his revealed word in the covenant that he's given. But it's okay because we have a private agreement. Our agreement is different. Yeah, I know the rest of believers, they kind of work under this you know, thing, but, but he and I, you know, we've kind of come up with something new. And so we got our own thing going over here and they might've described it this way, but it's the way in which they're operating their life. It's the way in which they, they live out things, you know, and these private agreements that people claim to have is a claim that certain laws don't apply to them. That's why it's different. Hey, you know, for everybody else, yeah, this law applies to you, but for me, we got a private agreement, me and God, and so I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to abide by this. You know, I can do my own thing. And you see this in so many different areas. One that's very, you know, pervasive in our culture is the mindset of, you know what, sex outside of marriage. I know that, you know, God says that that's something that's wrong and that's something that's forbidden, but I got my own private, you know, agreement with God, and that doesn't pertain to me. You know, I got my girlfriend or I got my boyfriend here and, and we're, we can sleep together. It's okay. You know, because, you know, I got this private agreement with God and, you know, it's wrong for you guys to do that. But no, it's okay for me. I've talked with people that try to convince me. No, no, God said I could do it. No, he didn't. <laughs> it's completely against his word. And you don't get some private agreement, some special clause in your relationship with God that says you're able to sin in a way that other people are not. You know, when it comes to money, to resources, some people will say, you know, I got... God says, be good stewards and, you know, think of, you know, using our money for his kingdom and his glory. But you know what? I got a private agreement. God lets me spend however I want, do with what I want, the way I want to do it. You know, I don't have to be accountable to him. I don't have to give to him. You know, I know that you guys need to do that, but, but I'm not in that boat. You can go down the list of all sorts of different ways that people kind of think, you know, the covenant for me is different, but it's not. God doesn't give us 
things that we can take away. He doesn't give us things that we can add. He says, this is it. I've established it with my word. Are you willing to accept it? So the first thing we see connected with this covenant is the covenant that God has made based off his word. It's the foundation of the old covenant. It's also the foundation of the new covenant on the word that God has established. The second uh, thing we see connected with this covenant is verses four through six. And Moses rose early in the morning and built an altar and at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So notice what Moses does. He, he gets up early in the morning. He realized, man, what's going to happen today is super important. We have the establishment of this covenant, and there are things that I need to get ready for this covenant to take place. And notice the two things that he personally puts together and builds. He builds an altar at the base of the mountain so that the nation of Israel can come to the base of the mountain and see that. And then he builds 12 pillars, one representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then... As he does this, you know, the, the purpose of the altar is to offer offering to the Lord. And so he, we're told he, he takes some young men, sends them uh, to basically get some oxen, kill them, and offer them as burnt offerings, offer them as peace offerings. But notice the oxen. In order for this to happen, they had to be sacrificed. And so the second thing we see connected with this covenant is that the covenant was made in the context of sacrifice. The oxen were being sacrificed to the Lord on behalf of the nation of Israel. And the thing about sacrifice, and, and even as we're going to look at the sacrificial system, it's just, you know, it's a recognition that I am sinful. I have to admit my sin, admit my failing before God, and it shows that in order for me to properly deal with my sin before God, I need the death of a substitute. Why? Because I deserve death. The wages of sin is death. And so somebody's got to die for my sin to be dealt with. And so throughout the Old Testament, there was animals who were innocent, who were murdered or killed, placed on this altar for the covering of the nation of Israel's sin, that something else had to die in their place. The sacrifice of oxen, though, or sheep or anything, really were not fully able to deal with man's sin. They covered it. But really, they pointed to a future sacrifice, one that would deal with sin once and for all, a sacrifice that would be complete, a sacrifice that would only need to be once, where this one was a continual thing that had to continually take place, a continual covering happening over and over again. But it was pointing to the one and only sacrifice that would come to deal with man's sin once and for all. And that was the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross for our sins. You see, Jesus' sacrifice is at the heart of the new covenant. So you see, sacrifice established in the old covenant, and it's a huge portion of what the new covenant is established, and the foundation of it is based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The third thing we see connected with this covenant is in verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. So Moses wrote down all these laws. He's already verbalized these laws. They've already responded verbally to it. But now he wrote it all down. And once again, 
let's make sure you guys know what you're getting yourself into. I've said it to you once. Now I'm going to read it to you again. All that God has declared, all that he wants you to obey, all the laws that he has said, let me read it. Let me read his word. And now you guys will be in a place where you can respond. And so as they hear the word of God, they hear what is required of them. We hear a a similar thing that they say, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. The third thing we see connected with this covenant is that the covenant was made when God's word was heard and responded to with acceptance. Notice this, before God would enter into a covenant with the nation of Israel, they needed to hear what was required of them. They needed to respond to what they heard, but that response needed to be one of acceptance. If they reject it, then obviously there's no covenant. So they got to hear what is required of them. They got to respond with acceptance to what is required of them in order for the covenant to be established. And we see the same thing with the new covenant. In order for someone to enter into the new covenant, they must hear what God requires of them. They must hear of the reality of what they are sinful and what God requires of them to ultimately have their sin dealt with, which is the great news of the gospel. And they must respond by accepting the gospel. But God's not going to force someone into a covenant relationship with them. If they don't want to choose that, then there won't be a covenant. If they don't want to accept the gospel, then they won't have the blessing of the new covenant with them. It's a choice that each individual has to make. So they got to hear what the basis of the covenant is on. Jesus Christ, faith in him, what he has done. And they have to be willing to either accept or reject. And it's only those who accept that then enter into that wonderful new covenant that we have with Jesus Christ. The fourth thing we see connected with this covenant is in verse 8. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Now back in verse 6, we're told that Moses took half the blood from the oxen and put it in basins, and then half the blood of the oxen he put on the altar. Now I did some research, and oxen holds about 5 gallons of blood. It's about 10% of their body weights. It's a lot of blood, five gallons of blood. So for each oxen, we don't know how many they slaughtered, but for each one, about two and a half gallons went into a basin and the other two and a half gallons were sprinkled over the altar. And so every oxen that's killed, you know, the altar is now just soaked in blood. You know, they're just seeing this, you know, this blood soaked altar up there. And, you know, that's quite a picture. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, in a church service, if we had an altar full of blood, you know, it might be the last time you come to church, but it'd definitely be the last time you come to church if I did what Moses is about to do. He goes to the basins that are full of gallons and gallons of blood, and he takes that blood, and he starts sprinkling it all over the people, flinging it on them. So not only is the altar now covered in blood, the people are literally covered in blood. And, you know, this is quite a, you know, a scene here. Sometimes we read things like this and we just, you know, gloss over it. But, I mean, if you were part of that, I mean, that'd be pretty intense. I mean, you got this animal blood in your face, on your body, you know, and, you know, there's a point to this. You know, God's wanting them to to recognize. I mean, that'd definitely be something that you would never forget. You know, this moment of the establishment of this covenant would be all the more memorable as this animal blood is being flung on you and as you're seeing this altar and these you know oxen who are being slaughtered and their blood being poured out 
The fourth thing we see connected with this covenant is the covenant was made with the application of blood. I think it's important as we look through the Bible, there's nothing magical about blood. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, with the blood, it's, it's got this magic power. No, there's no magic power with any blood, but there is something significant about it. I think Leviticus 17.11 gives us, you know, kind of what God sees as the significance of the blood. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. You see, the significance of the blood is it's the blood that is the life of the flesh. You know, and we can recognize that. You know, you realize, hey, someone's blood's gone, they're dead. You know, only with blood can we live. And so the blood is the life of the individual or the life of the animal. And when their throat is slit and that blood pours out, their life is literally pouring out and they only have a little bit of time before they're dead. Once the blood leaves, that animal's dead. And we associate the blood with life or the lack of blood with death. And we see this. God is saying, hey, I've given you the blood to atone for your souls, to make atonement for your sin. Why? Because something has to die in order for your sin to be covered. And the blood has to be drained so that there's that death of that animal in order for the sin to be dealt with. And we see this very vividly. The nation of Israel is watching this. And, you know, it's not just watching some animal being slain and blood being on an altar, which in itself might be, you know, a little hard for some people to bear. But then having that blood flung all over you, you know, even more of a very vivid experience. But you know what? This is a foundation of the new covenant as well. You look and say, well, thank goodness that's the old covenant. It's so bloody. But you know what? The foundation of our new covenant is all about blood. But it's a far more superior blood. It's not the blood of oxen. It's not the blood of sheep. It's not the blood of bulls. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. The new covenant is based on the shed blood of Jesus for us when he died on the cross for our sins. It's that blood that covers us. We don't have it sprinkled on us, but it's, it's a covering. It's an atoning work. Jesus had to have his blood removed in death so that we could receive life even though we don't deserve it, because he took the punishment for our sin and gave his life for us. You know, right before Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, he had one final Passover meal with his disciples. And he says something in that that really goes back to the start of this covenant. Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. So Jesus, as we we know of this from communion and looking at the representation of the body and the blood, but he's also coming back to just as the covenant is being established based on blood. Hey, my blood is the establishment of the new covenant for what? The remission of sins. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to give my life. My blood's going to be shed for your sin to deal with you. And they don't get this at this point in time. They're not expecting Jesus to die. It's after the fact that they finally click and realize, wow, what a powerful moment in what he just said. The new covenant, just like the old, is based on the shed blood of someone else. But you know what? I think it's interesting. The Bible also tells us not only is the the new covenant, uh, the shed blood of Jesus kind of the start 
as we put our trust in what Jesus has done, as we accept the gospel message of his sacrifice for us. But Hebrews tells us that we also live out our life. The maturity of the believer, the growth of the believer is something that comes back to the shed blood of Jesus as well. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice it's through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And this is the thing that's so wonderful as well. You know, the, the old covenant was that based off of works and, you know, it was often, you know, they failed on their end. But the new covenant's everlasting because it's based off of what Jesus has done and our faith in him. And ultimately that brings eternal life and an everlasting covenant that we have with him. But notice through the blood of the everlasting covenant that makes us complete in every good work to do God's will. So not only is it the the foundation and the start of our Christian life and and becoming saved, but it's like coming back to that is what helps us walk in newness of life, what helps us do what God has called us to do. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus says, you know what, I want you to regularly do this, take communion in remembrance of me. Because it's not just remembering what you base your salvation on, but it's also the, the growth that you have comes back to my sacrifice and the strength that I give and what I've offered to you that enables you to walk in the works that I've called you to do. So when the old covenant was established, it was made with this connection to four important things, made based off of God's word, made in the context of sacrifice, made when God's word was heard, responded to with acceptance, and made with the application of blood. And all four of these things point to Jesus and how he would establish his new covenant, a covenant based on his word, his sacrifice, his shed blood, and people accepting the good news of what he did for them. Now, remember the start of this chapter, God tells Moses, okay, I know you're with me now, but you've got to go get some guys. Go down, get your brother, Aaron, get his sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, and get the 70 elders, the, the men who are helping lead the nation of Israel. And I want you to bring them to me, bring them, you know, to the mountain here. And there's going to be something that's special that I have for them. And, you know, he doesn't bring the whole nation He brings the leaders of the nation because God wants to do something for that. And then he also said, and then once that happens, Moses, you and I, we're going to have a personal little encounter as well. So let's see what happens as these leaders of Israel come, verses 9 through 11. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and drank. Moses has already had some pretty amazing experiences with God. If you remember that, you know, he wants to see God, but, you know, God lets him kind of see his back and puts him in that cleft of the rock because if Moses sees God's face, he's going to be dead. But he, he had that experience. He saw a portion of God, you know, the glory of that's amazing. But, you know, these guys are now getting a special encounter, a unique encounter that most people did not receive. And we're told they saw the God of Israel. 
Now, they didn't see God face to face. You know, we know that that wouldn't be something that was possible. But we're given some, we don't, we don't know exactly all that they saw, except that we, we do recognize that, you know, Moses maybe got the, the back of God. These guys are getting maybe more of the feet shot of God because we, we are told that, you know, they see what's under God's feet. It was a, a paved work of sapphire stone. It was like the heavens in its clarity. And this is interesting because it seems that God has given them a, a vision of his throne. Uh, as they come up there, because in the book of Revelation, the book of Ezekiel, uh, you have both of these, you know, pictures of this sapphire stone that, you know, is all around the throne of God, that his feet are on. Revelation talks about like this, you know, sea that looks like crystal. Uh, and so this is very much a picture of, of God's throne and maybe kind of even like his footstool where, where his feet are resting. And, and this is what they get to see. We don't know everything. We know that this is, you know, kind of a portion. And maybe that's it. Maybe God says, you know what? I'm going to let you see my feet. You know, and this is going to be glorious for you because most people don't get to see anything of me and you're going to see, you know, the throne and my feet and, uh, and they get this wonderful, you know, glimpse. Um, and why? You know, we're told then they saw God, they ate and drank. And, you know, I think God's giving these guys this special experience because he recognizes their importance to the spiritual growth of the nation of Israel. These are, it's not just Moses. You know, I mean, Moses has got millions of people that he has to try to lead, and he's incapable of doing that on his own. And so he now has his brother, his brother's sons, his brother's going to be the high priest. He's got these 70 elders. You know, these are all going to be the men responsible to help Moses as he, you know, tries to instill all these laws which God has, has established to teach these people the way in which they should live, and he can't do that on his own. And so now you have these guys with this privileged experience. One, they're going to see... The reality of God is much more evident in my life. I mean, I've seen something that's just kind of blown my mind. And hopefully it would help them be better helpers of Moses, be more confident in Moses' ability to, hey, you, you did hear from God because we, we were there. We saw the presence of God. We experienced these things. And as we go back to our families and as we go back and share with people, you know, we can pass on, yeah, God's presence was real. And oh man, what I saw was amazing. Just this little bit of his throne. And, you know, but I think this was important for these leaders to have this experience to help them be more effective in what is needed because we're going to see that, a couple of them are going to fail pretty quickly. But now Moses is going to have his, his own individual experience. So these guys, God brings a portion of the way. Moses, he's going to get to go all the way up into the mountain. And notice what we're told in verses 12 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments, which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. It's kind of a dramatic conclusion to all that's going on here. And so, you know, this starts with God and Moses together. Hey, you need to go down, but you got to come back up. I want you to read, you know, tell the nation of Israel all that I just told you. 
But I want you to come back with the elders. But then I want you to really come back, just you and me, because we got more that I want to do with you. So come to me on the mountain and be there. I'm going to give you tablets of stone, the law and the commandments, which I have written that you may teach them. And this is what we typically think of when we think of Moses going up on Mount Sinai. We don't think of all the other things that happened. It's like, well, he went up on there to get the Ten Commandments. You know, if you've seen the movie, he comes down with the tablets. Well, this is going to happen. You know, he is going up now at this point in time, and God's making these tablets. God is establishing this. He's actually, you know, doing this, and he's giving this written thing that's going to last for Moses to take back to the nation of Israel. So once again, it's like, well, what did God say? Well, we have it written down on tablets of stone so that we don't forget the laws that God wants from us. And notice the reason that God is giving this to Moses so he can teach these commands to the Israelites. Moses, that's one of your big roles here. I want them to know what I've commanded them. I want them to do what I've commanded them. They claim it. They said it. Oh, we'll be obedient. We promise. God knows what's going to happen. God knows their struggle. God knows they're going to need a leader to continue to help them understand and hear and know what he has commanded them to do and encourage them in it. So told Moses and Joshua, get up. And then Moses goes, but notice what he says. This is kind of a humorous thing if you know the rest of the story. Wait here for us until we come back to you. So this is a good final thing that he tells, you know, he's talking to the 70 elders and Aaron and his sons. You guys wait here. I'm going to come back, okay? But notice he goes on to say, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. So I'm going to go. You guys wait. You know, if anyone's got problems, don't worry. I got two guys in charge, Aaron and her. You guys got a problem, bring it to them. They can handle it. They can deal with it. I'll leave them in charge. And we're going to see that them in charge didn't go so well. But that's how Moses leaves. He doesn't expect his brother, doesn't expect her to have these issues that they're going to have. But um, he goes to the mountain and notice what we're told. The glory of the Lord rested on the mountain and the cloud, it covers it for six days. So six days, you just see the cloud covered mountain and then all of a sudden, audibly once again, God calls Moses to come. I'm sure the nation of Israel sees, they hear, and now the cloud-covered mountain is a little more fierce on that seventh day when Moses is called. We're told that the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So, you know, it might have just been like a peaceful cloud-covered mountain. And then all of a sudden, six days go by. Moses, when are you going to go? Well, God's going to call me up. And then, boom, God says, come on, Moses. And at that time, you know, just like before when God spoke, you know, fire is consuming this mountain. It's a fierce thing. And Moses walks right into the midst of it and goes into the mountain. And I, I think it's important to kind of think about that for a moment because as we transition to what happens... They're already afraid. They've already said, hey, we don't want to hear from God anymore. We don't even want to be near this mountain anymore. Moses, you go do this. We're, we're too afraid of what's going to happen. And he just walks right into this. And he's gone. They don't see him. I mean, it's just like he's been consumed in this mountain that's on fire. And he's past this cloud. They can't see him anymore. And he's gone for 40 days. He's gone for 40 nights. And you could think, okay, after a couple of days, you know, when's he coming back? <laughs> Is he coming back? I mean, I haven't seen him. What's going on there? Why don't you go check? Well, none of us can go up there. We'll be struck dead. And you can see why they might start thinking he's never coming back. And it's going to lead to some big problems. 
Now, this is where the book of Exodus gets kind of interesting because as Moses is on the mountain with God, we kind of have, if you're doing a movie, Moses would walk through the cloud and then, you know, the movie would kind of focus in the cloud on what God tells Moses there. And God's going to tell him all sorts of things about the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the things that he needs to build, what they're supposed to be like, their size, their dimensions. All this stuff is going to go into it. And it's going to be chapter after chapter after chapter about the tabernacle. And it was a movie. You see all that. And then it would kind of be like, okay, now let's see what's been happening outside the clouded mountain with the nation of Israel. And then we get to a chapter where it shows what they do with Aaron as the lead. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump past all the tabernacle stuff for a moment next week. And we're going to look at the kind of culmination of the end of Exodus where the nation of Israel, what happens with them while Moses is on the mountain, what Aaron does as leader. Because at the end of that, we have a reiteration of the tabernacle, all that it's supposed to be. So twice in the book of Exodus, we have all this stuff about the tabernacle. And so I don't want to be redundant and go through it twice. So we're going to jump past it. We're going to go to what happens. And then we're just going to finish the book of Exodus, really just looking at a whole study of the tabernacle, of all the different things, of what they symbolize, their importance. Um, We're going to kind of conclude with that. Uh, So if you're going verse by verse and be like, wait a second, next week we've kind of jumped past like eight chapters. Yes, we have. We'll come back to them. Uh, but we're going to find out the end, like what happens in the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses is gone. And we're going to see not very many good things. But uh, in this chapter, we have the establishment of the old covenant, which was made with the connection to four important things is made based off of God's word, made in the context of sacrifice, made when the word of God was heard, responded to with acceptance and then made with the application of blood And all these four things point to Jesus and how he would establish the new covenants, a covenant based on his word, his sacrifice, his shed blood, and people accepting the good news of what he did for them. And after the covenant was made, God calls the elders of Israel for the special time to help them lead. And he calls Moses to give him the Ten Commandments on tablets to these commandments that he can then go and help the nation of Israel learn and grow in so any thoughts on this chapter and the covenants and, you know, what God established? 